Welcome to Back in Crime, a podcast presented by Texas Crime Travelers. I'm Stuart Fillmore, retired FBI agent. And I'm Todd Hiles, retired Secret Service agent. In this podcast, we cover cases we work and some we wish we had. As lifelong street agents, we were where the rubber met the road. While the big guys were doing press conferences, we were interviewing the criminals. And because of that, we can take you inside these cases and under the crime scene tape. This is Back in Crime. Hey, Stuart, welcome to today's uh, podcast. Hey, Todd. How's it going? Awesome. Hey, uh, a lot of people love a great mystery, and today's podcast is uh, not only is it a great mystery, but it's kind of an unsolved crime. Really? I love, you know, I love mysteries. I love unsolved crimes, so this is right up my alley. You, you know, on our social media accounts, uh, TikTok and YouTube, you know, people have been reaching out to us and uh, asking us if we have any comments on this case. And so uh, today's a good day to jump into it. Man, I, what is it? Well, it, 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 it's the D.B. Cooper case. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, you know, for me, in 1978, the TV show with Leonard Nimoy, In Search Of. Yes. Uh, he did an episode uh, on this case, and ever since that day, it has intrigued me. How old were you then? I was probably about 12. Okay. And uh, I can remember going through school and, and book reports and things like that uh, on D.B. Cooper, and it's just has always intrigued me. Um, in fact, I can remember years ago meeting you mm-hmm. and asking you as an <laughs> FBI agent, did you work any of the leads uh, over I, the years from did. this case? Never did. You know, and, and I think it's funny, too, as long as you and I have been friends, um, you know, I have certain cases that fascinate me, you know, unsolved, mainly the, the unsolved, this, and this, this, this is a case that should absolutely fascinate me because it's got all the elements that I love, but for whatever reason... The D.B. Cooper case never really grabbed my attention. I mean, I'm, I'm probably more familiar with it than just the average person, but that's just because I was in the FBI, more than likely. Um, but I've, I've never truly studied it uh, as much as you have, and I didn't realize until we, you know, we had talked that, that this is something that you've, you've really been into since you were a kid, so it's just kind of funny. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy that I've carried it along all these years. Um, but you know, before we jump into this case, you know, let, let's talk about what really fuels a conspiracy, you know, or, or makes something that that's unsolved, um, that really draws the people's attention in okay. to, to wanting this. I'd love to know because um, I don't really know why I am, <laughs> uh, you know, I, and I always think that there's like a timeline from whenever the offense happens until there's an arrest. And it seems like if, if we go along that timeline, um, and the arrest might take a week or take days. It seems like the longer it takes, the more things start to spin up and become a conspiracy. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think I think that's just probably how the human brain works is, you know, it, it tries to fill in the blanks of, of what it sees and experiences. And so a case like that, the natural human tendency is to want to solve it. And, and to fill in those blanks. And, and I, I think during that time, you know, it, it seems like law enforcement is like tight-lipped. They're not saying sure. yeah. anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, it's, it's always that same thing. Um, you know, no comment. This is an ongoing investigation. Exactly. And they're not really sharing what they know yes. with, with the public. And, and there's a good reason for that. I mean, that's not just because they just want to uh, tease the public or, you know, it actually, there, there is a purpose to that because some evidence only the the killer or only the suspect may know about 
And so you certainly don't want the public knowing what all your evidence is. Right. And I think sometimes as a criminal investigator, I've seen in the past before where we're working investigation and the media is talking about it and they're incorrect. Exactly. And, the, and they're, they're, they're putting so out many times. They're, yeah, they're putting out misleading information. And, and it's so frustrating as a criminal investigator um, because we could be losing leads because of their the incorrectness that that's exactly right there. but it's the same phenomenon they're just trying to fill in the blank because you have a, a sensational case not solved no suspect and so they want to try to make that story complete well let's jump into this and before we jump into it why don't you give us a uh, a recap of okay. db cooper on the afternoon of november 24th 1971 a nondescript man calling himself dan cooper approached the counter of northwest orient airlines in portland oregon he used cash to buy a one-way ticket on Flight 305, bound for Seattle, Washington. Thus began one of the great unsolved mysteries in FBI history. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a drink, bourbon and soda, while the flight was waiting to take off. A short time after 3 p.m., he handed the flight attendant a note indicating that he had a bomb in his briefcase and he wanted her to sit with him. The stunned flight attendant did as she was told. Opening a cheap attache case, Cooper showed her a glimpse of a mass of wires and red-colored sticks and demanded that she write down what he told her. Soon, she was walking a new note to the captain of the plane that demanded four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. When the flight landed in Seattle, the hijacker exchanged the flight's 36 passengers for the money and parachutes. Cooper kept several crew members and the plane took off again, ordered to set a course for Mexico City. Cooper sent the flight attendant to the cockpit while donning the parachute, tied the bank bag full of $20 bills to himself, lowered the rear stairs, and somewhere north of Portland, a little after 8 p.m., jumped into the night. When the plane landed with the stairs down, they found the two remaining parachutes, and on the seat Cooper was sitting in, a black tie. Jets, a helicopter, and a C-130 aircraft had been scrambled from the closest Air Force base to follow Cooper's plane. The military was called in days after the hijacking, and approximately 1,000 troops searched the suspected jump zone on foot and in helicopters. The SR-71 super-secret spy plane was sent in to photograph the entire flight path, but no sign of D.B. Cooper was ever discovered. The FBI learned of the crime in flight, and immediately opened an extensive investigation that lasted many years. Calling it Norjack, the Northwest hijacking, hundreds of people were interviewed, leads were tracked across the nation, and the aircraft was scoured for evidence. By the five-year anniversary of the hijacking, the FBI investigated more than 800 suspects. Nine years later in 1980, just north of Portland and on the Columbia River, a young boy named Brian Ingram was digging a fire pit in the sand at a place called Tenna Bar. He uncovered three bundles of cash a couple of inches below the surface, with rubber bands still intact. There was a total of $5,800. The Cooper serial numbers matched, and the first evidence since 1971 came to light. The FBI searched and analyzed the beach. The river was dredged by Cooper hunters and the theories on how the money got there supercharged the legend of D.B. Cooper. Man, right there, we have a great conspiracy. Talking about fueling the fire, the media, they get the suspect's name wrong. Right it's from Dan the start. Co right from the start. Yeah. It's Dan Cooper, right. and someone in the media mistakenly calls him D.B. Cooper. I don't know if 
DB Cooper had a had more sex appeal or just sounded better to the reporter. Who knows? Uh, you know, they scribbled something down on a piece of paper and and misspelled it. Who knows? Uh, but you know, in this investigation, I think the first big debate is is did Cooper have skydiving experience? Yes. Um, and, and so a lot of people say he was must have been an expert to jump out of a plane. Other people said no, he could be an amateur that, that jumped out of there. Um, well, he he seemed to be familiar with the aircraft though right correct right. i mean he was he he's the one that actually opened the the rear door right i i think there was some talk that there was some interaction with the flight attendant to mm -hmm. make sure that he knew how to open it in flight I, I know when it was going to take off from seattle he wanted the the rear stairs opened and the pilots did not think that they could take off that way um, they actually reach out to some engineers who says, no, the plane has to take off with the stairs up. Okay, so the stairs would have to be lowered in flight. Right. Okay. Right. Um, I think sometime after this, this, this Cooper hijacking, there's another hijacking just a few months after this one. Um, however, on that one, the bad guy or the hijacker actually brought his own parachute on the plane. <laughs> Um, so, and, and that, that guy turned, did, did he have it in his baggage? I mean, did, did he just walk onto the plane I, I, wearing a parachute? I would think back then he just carried it on like it was a knapsack and mm -hmm. threw it in the overhead. Um, but that guy had a lot of experience okay. in, in, be, in, in jumping out of planes. Do you, do you recall his name in the subsequent? Wasn't it McCoy? Uh, McCoy. Yes. Yeah. So McCoy to me, I always thought seemed like a really good suspect because he looks a lot like the drawing, you know, that, that exists of D.B. Cooper that I, I guess was based on the flight attendant's description. Um, but I think it was pretty well established that McCoy was not D.B. Cooper. I believe he had an alibi mm -hmm. at this time where he was at. And also, I think they had his voice from one of his court appearances and the flight attendant listened to that and said that was not the same voice. Okay. Yeah. Although it's just funny. He, he checked all the boxes, you know, he looked like him. He had, he had a parachute experience. He had, uh, he knew airplanes. He, he seemed tailor-made to be D.B. Cooper, but he was not. And, and he successfully hijacked one and, and jumped out. Oh yes. Almost the same pattern, the same crime. I think some people felt, though, too, that if he was more, if Cooper was more of a professional in his ransom, instead of asking for four parachutes, he might have asked for, you know, boots mm -hmm. or goggles or gloves. Yeah, survival gear yeah. of some kind. Yeah, something like that, that they, they would have easily given him all that sure. at the same time. Oh, yeah. So, Todd, why, why four parachutes? I think the thinking there is that he was going to take hostages with him to jump out. Really, um, but it, it turns out that it, it's actually four parachutes. It, it's two back parachutes and two front parachutes. Okay. Um, and and the, the crazy thing about that is, is that one of the front parachutes, the FBI is going to learn days later that it, it actually was a training parachute. Okay. And that it was for a classroom only and that it would not actually open. This is the one that he 
and this presumably is, used. Yes, he right? used that as his front parachute. And, and just to clarify, because I, I've never jumped out of an airplane. Um, this is not any experience that I have. But you said you said a front parachute and a back parachute. That simply means a front parachute being one that's that you that the that the person wears and it's on the front of their body. Yeah, I, I think in this the type of parachutes that that he used that would be more of a reserve parachute in the front. The front and, would be the reserve. primary. Primary be on the back. Right. Got it. Okay. Right. And again, this classroom reserve parachute was accidentally given to them. Uh, I think they talk about it was, you know, the FBI and law enforcement that night were scrambling, trying to get parachutes Mm -hmm. as part of the ransom while while the plane was there in Seattle. So would you think if the presumption is that that he, you know, had some experience in skydiving, um, that he would have checked the parachute? Fully to he would have recognized that that was a reserve parachute that was yes. only for a classroom. Exactly, he would have known what to look for. Right, but I, I think the big thing for me was if he had more experience, he would have looked at that night the weather being as bad as it was, and I, I think he would have scrubbed that mission. Okay, and said I, I'm I'm not jumping in this cold, the rain, the snow, uh, especially when you're just you're wearing a suit. Sure, a business suit yeah. like that. <laughs> That's so, not that that type of attire is not going to get you very far, right? In the and and I, and I think Westwoods when he he boards the plane in Portland, it's already raining and it's already cold, so he knows what mm-hmm. the weather what the weather is like. What, what was the temperature? You know, I'm not even sure what it was. Probably um, in the 40s, something like yeah. that. Maybe I, I think it was snow. Oh, okay. You know, at, at times. I think, you know, as you know, people had said, if you're a, a professional and you're going to hijack an airplane and jump out, that this would actually be the worst part of the United States to jump out because you're over so much yeah. uh, trees. So it's so sparsely populated, you know, and just miles and miles of dense forest. Right. Yeah. You're going to have to have some type of a, a survival skill. Absolutely. Navigational skills. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think Again, you know, some people will bring up and say, hey, it was, you know, whether he's inexperienced or whether he's not inexperienced, but was this, you know, a, a crime that he's just flying by the seat of his pants as it's going along or had he planned this out? And you know, I, I it, it seems to me there almost has to be some planning. I mean, you know, he's, he, he there, there does seem to be some method to his madness that he because he, he instructs the pilot what what altitude to get to. Right. Right, the back stairs open. I mean, he's not making any any secret that he's going to dive out. But again, you had the the military planes that were following this, right? Of course, this is night, but they never saw anybody. They never saw anyone jump. No, and, and I'm sure once the pilot realizes that the back stairs have been lowered, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure on the radio they made some indication to those pilots mm-hmm. that hey, the back door is open. Um, but, you know, just going back to just the day that he does this, this is the eve before Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. So yeah. The, the travel at the airports, there there has to be a ton of passengers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's probably easily getting into that counter, quickly buying a ticket. Most people are thinking, well, maybe he's just flying home. So it wasn't suspicious that he uses cash. Yes. That he buys a one-way ticket. Yes. Doesn't really have luggage with him. Well, 1971 was just a completely different time, and I don't think it would have been that unusual anyway for someone to just show up, buy a ticket, pay cash for it, you know, and, and go from there. Certainly with, with Thanksgiving traffic, it would, there would have been even more people. He would have stood out even less. Right. And, and maybe he knows, you know, most FBI agents are probably at home by now, and 
the next day's a holiday and they're not going to be working. Oh yeah. Things like that. Right. Um, you know, and also, you know, he constructed a bomb and brought that on board. So it wasn't like he just was flying to Seattle and decides halfway in the flight that he's going to hijack. Sure. Yeah. So, so clearly there was, there was planning involved, but like almost any plan, once you start executing it, something will happen that you did not plan for. I mean, that's just almost true in any endeavor, you know? So how much of this did he have to improvise and, you know, go on the seat by the seat of his pants? Right. And I think the, when the plane lands in Seattle, uh, he wants the plane refueled because he wants to go to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there's some talk that when they land it in Seattle, they, they park way off on a runway. Uh, the fuel truck has to come out there. Right. I think there's some problem with the first fuel truck that gets there. So he kind of, he's aware that, this is taking longer than what it should have taken. Yes. Um, I think one of the flight attendants says that, you know, he gets sort of frustrated that it's taking so long to, to get this uh, refueled and get on their way. Right. And I think even when they decide to get on their way, again, he, you know, he wants the, the, the fly at a certain altitude. He wants to fly with the back stairs open. And then they realize they don't have enough fuel at that speed, at that altitude to get to Mexico City that they're going to need to refuel. Okay. And... Think they come up with three other airports that they could land at. I think one being San Francisco, one being Reno, and I thought you know, the third one was in Arizona. Okay, that they could land at, and they kind of gave it his choice of which which way do you want to go, and and he picked Reno. What was Cooper's destination in Mexico? Mexico City. Okay, okay. So presumably they would have to refuel, maybe in San Francisco or a couple of other places, and they gave him the option. And that would be enough fuel, I guess, to make it to Mexico City. Right. Okay. And, and I think it was it's Cooper who has the idea then, out of the choices that they give him, to land in Reno. They're en route to Reno when he jumps out of the plane. Right. Yeah. So let's let's talk about a second here what the FBI got right up to this point. Sure. Yeah. In okay. This. So, um, like you you said in your recap, and I think over since then it's been over a thousand suspects that the FBI has yeah. interviewed yeah. and have eliminated from this case. You know, I remember, uh, it's been two or three years ago, you know, when the FBI officially closed the case and made the D.B. Cooper files available, you know, in their vault uh, online. I started reading through that, um, and it's very, very voluminous. <laughs> there's a lot in those files. So, yes, I'm not surprised that there's that many people. Yeah, when yeah. we talk about them in an investigate investigation being tight-lipped for years they never even admitted that they had the tie right yeah you know they were they refused to talk about that well again Um, that goes back to there may be something specific about the tie that only that would be unique to that person something like that I mean you know it's not just willy-nilly that we're not going to tell you stuff it's there, there usually is a purpose behind it and sometimes you know in law enforcement the media is is used to put information out that can help the investigation. But usually it's the other way around. You, you want to hold that information tight um, and to help the investigation. So now when the plane was sitting there in Seattle, it's the delay while they're trying to refuel it. But also some of the delay is, is that the FBI is recording the serial numbers 
of all the twenty dollar bills that makes gr- that they're giving perfect them. sense. Yes, you know, and this is you know again this is before scanning and computers. Sure. So, so somebody's handwriting all that. Somebody yep. is handwriting all <laughs> these serial numbers down. So now we have um, he's he's jumped out of the airplane, and it's an incredible search now for him. But again, think about this. This this isn't the first time that a lot of these sheriff's departments that they've searched for people out there. And they've always oh, had yeah. some success in finding people. And so that, you know, it, it's very odd that they didn't find Cooper right away. Um, there was also some artist rendering of, of what he looked like. Mm-hmm. They got that out to the public. Right. I think the serial numbers, they got to a lot of uh, banks and stores uh, in the area. Right. Had a list of those serial numbers uh-huh. to see if some of those 20s came in. So go back one second. When when he actually jumps out of the plane, he's by himself down there, right? Where where the stairs are, the back stairs of the plane. At some point on their way to Reno, he instructs the last flight attendant to walk up into the cockpit. Okay. And, and stay there. And stay there. And so they lose. There's some reports that the pilot asks, is there anything that he needs? And Cooper yells, no. And that's the last that they've communicate with him. Okay. Um, so how long before someone goes and checks to see where he is? It's not until probably three hours later when the plane lands in that Reno. Long? Okay. That uh, the plane lands in Reno, and they probably spend another twenty some minutes before the FBI finally get on the aircraft. Yeah, but what I'm getting at gone. is there's basically a three three hour window where you know, he could have jumped. We don't know exactly when when he jumped. Therefore, we don't know exactly where they were. We, you know, uh, so it's it, it makes for a wider search area. But I think the, the, the common thought is that when the plane leaves Seattle, uh, probably so many minutes into the flight, they realize that the stairs, the rear stairs have been opened. There's some type of an in- indicator that the pilot now sure. knows that the stairs that are open. That makes sense, yeah. So I think the... The, the wisdom or the thinking back then is within a minute or two, that's when he jumped. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's, it, you know, even at 10,000 feet would, it, that's, it's going to be pretty cold up there because it's cold on the ground. It's going to be colder up there. Right. So I'm sure it would have been uncomfortable for him to hang around there very long. So that makes sense. It's logical that, that yeah, when the stairs open, he's not going to linger there that long. Right. But I don't think and spoiler alert, I don't think he's going to telegraph when he jumps. Exactly. Because I think if, if, you've, if you've planned this entire hijacking up right. to this point, right. uh, the, your getaway is the most important thing. Sure. And, and you're not going to open the stairs and jump a minute later. Right. So, so, so also, there's four parachutes ordered. Two, two parachutes are found. One is a back parachute that ultimately turns out is a training parachute that most likely does not no, work. No, the front parachute. The front was. parachute. Okay, so the front parachute. And then he also had a back parachute? Yes. He okay. jumps with a back parachute, and then he jumps with the front parachute that does not work. Got it. It's the classroom one. Okay. But on the airplane, the other two parachutes, the, the one parachute is there. The other, the other parachute, the reserve, has been opened. Because that's what he puts the ransom money in that bag when he jumps. So he, he takes out that reserve front parachute out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and stuffs all the money so inside the bag, that bag that the parachute was in is gone, but the parachute itself was still there. Got right, it. right. Okay. It's it's still inside the plane. Okay. All right. And that's when the FBI search it when it lands in Reno. That's okay. what they find at Got that it. time. Um, which kind of makes me wonder why he just didn't throw that out outside the plane. When the door is open, just toss it. Because he had to do something with the bomb. They never found the bomb in the briefcase. Good point. Yeah. Um, so so the, the attache case goes with him. Right. Right. But I don't know if he, if he just tosses that. Sure. Just throws uh, it out. Because, I mean, we're over densely, pop, densely uh, wooded area, right? Like we just talked about. Right. So, and, you know, he doesn't really care, I guess. Right. And so, so now that this case, you know, we're, we're talking about years into this case. I can only imagine how many case agents they probably had throughout this time. Yeah, assigned to this case, and I'm Multiple. sure you know we've talked about this in previous podcasts. When you get assigned to a new squad, the first day you always get assigned cases that haven't yet been closed. For the most part, if you're the new guy, you you basically get some of the dog cases that no one wants to work, or that there's you know is that for whatever reason you can't can't solve the case so the case is just lingering and so that could be what this was but this seems like maybe a little higher priority matter although really you know in the whole scheme of things cooper didn't hurt anybody um you know it's, it's just more fascinating because of that he just just disappeared into the night that's really the more fascinating aspect of the case um but because it was such a media focused case it was, you know, a, a famous FBI case and therefore somewhat of a priority, I would think. Right. So now I think moving forward, it's it's got to be around 2007. Mm-hmm. And there's a young agent uh, by the name of Larry Carr. Larry and, Carr. And okay. Larry Carr is out of Seattle at this time. And I think he sort of requests uh, to be put on this case. Okay. And, and probably just like me, he's, he remembers this as a child. Sure. Um, yeah. so it, he immediately starts going through the files, reading about things on this case. Um, and it, he really was that idea of, of fresh eyes on this case, mm-hmm. having some thoughts and things that should be done. Um, so now I, I think as an, as an agent, and I know we've talked this before when I became a secret service agent, uh, when I was, uh, at home mm-hmm. sick from school, I saw the assassination attempt of president reagan and the agent that day out there was jerry parr okay and and so and i remember i probably was less than 10 years on the job when i actually got to meet jerry parr yeah um and that was it was a really a a cool thing absolutely uh, to meet him did you tell him that story you know i I didn't because it it just wasn't the setting okay to to tell him that i get it just the fact that it it was an honor to meet him sure and, and and you know, I don't think I really even asked him any questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, just a, a personable man. Um, but I think Larry Carr, I think he's retired now. But he definitely would be someone I would like to talk to now, and and really not ask questions so much about this case. But just there's a handful of questions I, I think I would have for him. Sure. That I would like yeah. to talk. So and and I know Larry has done some podcasts. He's been on there. Okay. So uh, yeah, I guess we'll Larry, if you're to get him. Larry, if you're yeah. out there listening, uh, reach come out join to the us. Texas Crime Travelers. Yeah, reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Um, 
So again, uh, Larry gets this, Larry Carr gets assigned to this case. Fresh yeah. eyes starts looking at this, um, and we've talked about this this conspiracy now has been going on for you know twenty thirty years. Yeah, and Larry starts looking at the internet and saying there's a lot of things that are wrong that people have wrong, and so he goes to the FBI and says, "Can I?" go to these websites and start saying, I'm the FBI agent, I'm the case agent. Yeah. This is what they have wrong. Yes. And let's start talking about things that we have. Yes. I think he brought this experience of investigating bank robberies mm -hmm. and, and this idea that we have a bank robbery at noon on Tuesday. Right. As soon as we can, we're getting the photos out Again, of the surveillance photos. Yes, like I mentioned, that, that's one of those things where sometimes the media can work for you in, in a case. Um, sometimes they work against you, but, but this is a case where there's just bad information out there. Let's get the right information out there with all these people that are still interested in this thing. And somebody may realize when they hear the correct information, wow, that, that description or that information really matches the guy that lives across the street from me. So you're right. I, I can see that's, that's where he's thinking. Yeah. So, so I think it was. Uh, I think it's in 2007, December of 2007, he actually creates this document that the FBI puts out there and they put actual photographs of what the parachutes look like. Right. Um, they talk about the black tie. Yep. Um, and, and I think this is probably the first time that a lot of this information gets out there. And, and I also think that they allow some of these people to come in and look what evidence that they have. Uh-huh, yep. I want to say it's been maybe five or six years ago, there was a TV special, and it was not, I forget the case agent's name, it was not Carr, um, but, you know, the actual case agent was was on this TV show and pretty freely talked about the case and who some of the suspects were and who definitely was not, had been a suspect, but definitely had been ruled out as D.B. Cooper. It was really uh, unusually open, you know, for how the FBI normally handles a case. Right. And I think um, by just talking about this, this may be the first time that they get information about Dan Cooper. Okay. That And, and the name Dan Cooper yeah. was from a comic book. Exactly. And right. in 1971, it, it wasn't even printed in English. It was uh, a Canadian, uh, maybe a French, a French yeah. uh, uh, a comic book. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and it talked about this character, Dan Cooper who actually parachutes out of a commercial airplane. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I guess this, this episode of this comic book came out just prior to this hijacking. Yeah, like so, so yeah, and that was somebody that came forward, right? Because he'd always been referred to as D.B. Cooper. But then when someone actually hears that it was Dan, this, Cooper. Dan Cooper was right. the name the guy gave, that that clicked with somebody like, well, that was a cartoon I used to read, you know, and it's about a guy that jumps out of an airplane. Exactly. So I, I really... I think that's what the FBI did right. Mm -hmm. it, it just took a long time to get this information out. Yes. You know, they could have done it a lot sooner to, to get that out. Um, so now it, it goes down to, you know, what everybody keeps asking us and, you know, what are our thoughts okay. on what, what happened? Yes. Um, so, uh, you well, know. You're, you're way more of an expert on this case than I am. So go ahead and, and give us your, your thoughts, you know, on that, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with my theory. Well, you're gonna laugh at my theory, but I'm gonna throw it out there anyway. You know, for, first of all, um, 
I, I would, it's more likely than not that this was a solo operation, that mm-hmm. he did not have anybody on the ground. Um, I think it would have been almost very impossible to communicate with anybody, mm-hmm. uh, especially when he's given the three different routes that they could go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I remember reading something about one of the, the pilots felt at one time that they wanted to go to San Francisco to get out over the ocean in case the bomb goes off or oh, okay. now that he has the parachutes, he's going to jump out over water. Sure. sure. Um, you know, th- this night again, being stormy, um, you know, low cloud cover, they, you know, it's always been reported that when he jumped out the back of the aircraft, he can't see the ground. He has no idea Man. where they're at. Wow. I mean, he's, he's jumping into darkness. Yes. I mean, it's just amazing to, to do that. Right. He had to have some experience with that. You know, I, I think <laughs> that there, there's some idea that he might have been in some type of uh, a military background mm-hmm. where he was on aircrafts. Mm-hmm. So he may have been familiar with putting parachutes on yes. in case they have to use them. Yes. So he, so he had some knowledge to that. I think the flight attendant in one of her statements says that, you know, she was watching him put it on and he acted like he knew what he was doing. Okay. Yeah. On that. Right. Um, yeah. Cause just a casual observer could see that someone is competent with equipment, you know, that the way they handle it and so forth. So yeah, I mean, that's not uh, out of bounds that she could say, yeah, he seemed to know what he was doing. So, uh, again, we're at Seattle. The plane's refueled. He's exchanged the passenger. He's got his parachutes. Um, and, you know, he wants those rear stairs down on takeoff. Because, again, uh, to me, I think he does not want to telegraph when he jumps. Absolutely. He, he, he doesn't want yep. people to know. Yep. Um so I think around 7.36 p.m. that night, the plane's refueled. It takes off around 8.11 p.m. You know, the cabin pressure indicator comes on. Mm-hmm. The pilots think that, that the air, the rear stores, the rear stairs have been opened. Um, and so now it's widely believed that's when he jumped. Yes. I, I tend to believe that's not when he jumped. Okay. I, I think he was back there a little bit longer. Uh-huh. Um, it's not until 11 p.m. Why do you think the the delay? Why why didn't he jump then? I just think that it doesn't matter to him when he jumps mm-hmm. because again, this is a solo operation. There's nobody on the ground waiting for him. Okay, he doesn't have a car parked somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know the weather being bad and looking out and not knowing where he's at. Right. So for him to jump out over somewhere the in the Northwest, right over a densely wooded area in, in night at night in cloud, cloudy situations. Again, if he's never jumped out of a plane before, he's either crazy or he's, he's just the bravest man on the planet, you know? Um, but, but he also has to have some navigational skills. I mean, that he's got to have a plan to deal with, when I make it to the ground, you know, where am I going to go? Because he's literally going to, could walk for miles and not even find a road. Right. Yeah. He could, he could come up to a river. He could come up to yeah, something that he so couldn't be able I'm to So I'm wondering if, 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 if your theory that, that he didn't jump immediately, that there is something he's waiting for and maybe he does have, you know, certain navigational knowledge and so he has a clue where they are. 
and that he's just waiting for that so that he, you know, so that he'll get in an area where he can make it to a car or someplace that he's familiar with. Right. And, and so it's, it's around 11 PM mm-hmm. that that plane now lands in Reno. Uh, I think it actually sits for like 27 minutes on the ground before the FBI get on the plane and realize, uh, you know, they search the plane and he, and he's not there. Yes. Right. Um, and so now it goes back to that moment. Well, that's when we think that he jumped when the stairs were lowered. Okay. Um, you know, I, I kind of think that when those stairs were down, they're flying, you know, if that airspeed's around 200 miles per hour mm-hmm. and he's standing at the back of those stairs, uh, I think it's cold. It, the, the rain yeah. Yeah. is hitting his hands and face. Yeah. You know, he might have frostbite. Um, but I think when he jumps... Uh, he immediately becomes unstable in the air. Okay. I think that with that money bag tied to his waist, hanging down, I, I think he just maybe goes into some type of a spiral. Okay. Um, it's dark, and, and I think he has enough training that he knows to reach his primary parachute and pull the ripcord. Right. And I, I think he has some some several seconds there where he's unable to open that, mm-hmm. and now he knows from training that he is to immediately uh engage the reserve yeah go to your mm-hmm. go to your reserve shoot you know transfer over to that and right and, and use that and again that transition to that reserve shoot and now we know that that reserve shoot reserve was the classroom shoot. right I, I think he pulls that for a few seconds it's frantic and then you know the last few seconds of of their coming okay. down he, he's just bracing for impact right I don't think the shoots ever open, and I just think he hits the ground. And that's it. So and that's it. He's still out there somewhere, right? And I and I don't think he's anywhere near where all of these searches have been done. Okay, where the you know these uh, military troops came in and searched for him. I, I know at one time they had brought the the Boy Scouts in mm-hmm. to search areas for him along this flight path. Right. Um, and again, no parachutes were ever found. No briefcase was ever found. No clothing was found. Um, Just this $5,800 that uh, Brian Ingram found. Yeah. yeah. Year, years later, that, right. that finds up. And that's only part of the money. Um, and again, um, I, I think at some point before he jumps, he's back there with the flight attendant. He actually tries to hand her a stack of bills. Yes. And, and she declines it. Right. Uh, so maybe does that not fit in that reserve chute? So now he just throws those out the plane, and, and that could the, be the money, and that yeah. that could be the money that they found. Yeah, um, I still find it on that, at least for the money that was found, the fifty eight hundred. I just find it hard to believe that the rubber bands are still intact. You know, there was um, there, a tremendous amount of research and lab work went into that. Okay, trying to figure out why they didn't deteriorate before, mm-hmm. and um, could they have been caught up in a tree? Mm-hmm. For a long time, were they under pine needles? What what, what was the deal? And yeah, and I just think that because I know that just probably right now at at my house, I've got a bag of uh, rubber bands, and I would bet that probably half of them, if I went to use them, they'd snap because they're they've dried out. You know, right? So that's what I mean. I I I just that's that's must be some tough rubber rubber bands to to withstand the, just the weather, just the, you know, very, very cold winters. And, you know, 
hot summer. So that right. that's a lot of change for a rubber band to be exposed to. Right. And and why the money didn't deteriorate more than yeah. the condition that it I was in. I can see in. the money more than the rubber band. Yeah. Right. So um, now what, what's interesting on this, and, and this will could be a whole podcast in itself, but again, what fuels these conspiracies? Yeah. So the person whose classroom and where these four parachutes were taken from, mm-hmm. um, over the years, I think the FBI went back to them on things that were found out in the woods, mm-hmm. whether it was canvas that people were using as tents or mm-hmm. things like that, and were always brought to him and were, were said, hey, was this the parachute material? And the answers were always no. Um, and then I want to say a few years ago, that man was actually murdered. No kidding. Okay. And and then and it's very strange circumstances because I think that that's an unsolved murder. Yeah. What year was he murdered? Do you know? It was just a few years ago. Okay. But the unique thing about that is weeks after he's murdered, his wallet is mailed back to his house. Presumably by the killer. Well, we don't know. That That's what it makes it a very unique. Yeah. A unique case uh, in itself, man. Wow, so, I did uh, not know that. Yeah. Okay. So, so that that can be a podcast in itself, okay. right there. Man, I I need to get up to speed on DB Cooper because, again, this is something that that fits everything that I like about you know true crime and and looking into these old unsolved cases. It it absolutely checks all the boxes for my interest, but I just I've just never read as in depth on it as you have. So do you have a theory? Okay, so here's my theory. So a few years ago, there was a Denzel Washington movie called Inside Man. And Denzel Washington was a, he was a New York City police detective. A good guy in in the movie. And uh, Clive Owen plays a bank robber who goes in, he's, he's, Clive Owen has a team of people that, that go in and they take over this bank. And they're, it's real mysterious as to what their purpose is, but ultimately they want to get some jewels that are inside uh, some safety deposit boxes in there. Um, and so they conduct this very elaborate takeover of the bank and actually in like the supply room, s- construct a, a room that is hidden behind the supply room shelves, okay? And Clive Owen lives in this little room for a week or so after the bank robbery because because nothing's missing. The, no money's missing, nothing. The cops cannot figure out what this whole bank robbery was about, and so the, the bosses just say, you know what, there's no victim here, there's no nothing, let's close it down and move on to the next case. So after a week or so, Clive Owen comes out of the room and just walks out of the bank with the, the stuff that he wanted from the uh, safety deposit box. So I'm not going to give that away for someone that wants to see this movie because it's actually a very good movie. But, you know, the FBI went in and scoured this bank and the, the, if you went into this supply room, it just looked normal, only there's a, a, a room that was constructed behind the shelf that you can't see. So I'm wondering, since there's some indication that that, that D.B. Cooper, Dan Cooper, had familiarity with airplanes... So is there some kind of compartment within one of those planes that he knew about that he could have maybe put himself in, maybe been very uncomfortable for, you know, a few days, 
and then the next time the plane was used or something, he just had picked his moment, came out of his little cubby hole, and just walked out with the other passengers. Well, I think when the plane lands in Reno, and again, we, we talked about this, it's like 20 minutes before the FBI then storms the plane. Uh-huh. I, I believe it was actually searched with K-9. Ah, uh, okay. It, it was searched with K-9. Okay. And then over the next few days, um, parts of this plane were removed. I think the seats were removed mm-hmm. that Cooper sat in because mm-hmm. I think they're going to end up finding some hair okay. that the FBI yes. has yeah, in. Yeah. And I think there was actually some DNA found on that tie as well. Right. And I think there were some cigarette butts. Mm-hmm. Those, that th- that they I think, found. went missing. If you want to talk about maybe where the FBI went wrong, I think losing some of the evidence could certainly oh, be at the top the of years, that list. Yeah. I don't know if it's lost yet as much as it might still be misplaced somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure where what happened to the cigarette butts. But I think there was some trash that they felt that the glasses that D.B. Cooper actually handled with, with the bourbon and soda. Sure. I think they had some of those glasses. Um, none of the Man, there would you'd think there'd be a fingerprint on the glass, you know. Right. And, and I know they, they said that he'd used a restroom and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they, how they fingerprinted this thing. But I, I'm sure this was uh, pretty much a, as a crime scene for, for a while. And right. I, I don't think anybody could be. Could have survived uh, in there. In the, in the overhead. I told you it was outrageous. but Because right. I'm just trying to ex- think to myself, how, how else could he do this? What, what, what is another way that maybe would, no one would think about that he would allow him to get away completely free? More than likely, your theory is the right one and that he just simply died that night. And I think the more that people talk about this case and it, it keeps them up at night thinking about things like this, yeah. I, I think they've termed that the, the Cooper curse. If you get this Cooper curse and you, you just can't let ideas go. Yeah. Um, so you can go out to the the internet and search Cooper curse. There will actually be some people that believe that the flight attendant pilots made all this up. That they no, kept I, the money No, I, I don't buy that for a second. No, this, this happened. And usually, again, I think the human brain are, is the tendency is to just want to fill in the blanks of, of a certain event that maybe there's something unknown. Your brain wants to wants to fill that in. That's because that's just how we how the right. brain works, right? Um, and it's the same thing with this. But Todd, we could probably sit here for days and just scratch the surface of all the theories about DB Cooper and where he might have gone and how he might have got away. I think again that your theory is probably the most likely scenario. He just, you know, he, he, either the fall or the elements killed him and he just never made it out of there. There, there's, there's always going to be some anomalies in a case that, that just, you just can't explain. And that's frustrating to me. You know, I guess with that, we've kind of introduced everyone to the DB Cooper case. We certainly want to hear your questions about maybe some areas that, you know, we could look into further. Um, we, we encourage your questions. We love hearing the, the input and reach you, out to us. Yeah, absolutely. Reach out to us. If you, if you follow us on TikTok, um, Instagram or YouTube, we certainly hope that you would, uh, subscribe and to like our content and, and for the podcast, you can follow us on Spotify, just, just rate and review and we'll keep, we'll keep it coming for you. If there's anybody that's interested in sponsoring our podcast, our email is in our description. Great. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, I love and, it. And if there's certain cases that we may not know of, people uh, 
reach out to us. Let us know, and we'll look into it, and we can talk about it. Yes, please. Thanks for listening. Hang in there, and we're going to keep bringing this great stuff to you. And again, uh, retired agent Larry Carr, if you're out there listening, please get a hold of us. Larry Carr, bring it on. This has been the Back in Crime podcast presented by Texas Crime Travelers Todd Hiles and Stuart Fillmore. We are the executive producers. Grace Hiles is the producer and director. Theme music composed by Eddie Bandis. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel at Texas Crime Travelers.